0: uh, Lord Jesus thank you so much for this uh, day thank you for this evening and for letting us come together as a group we thank you for Pastor Dane and his willingness to spend time uh, teaching us uh, your word we pray that you would anoint him with the Holy Spirit that you would speak your truth and your wisdom uh, through him help us to absorb this knowledge and be able to apply it to our lives and share it with those around us we pray that you would open an, an amazing amount of doors that we could share the good news of Christ during this time that we're in it uh, certainly seems like it's the beginning of the end times. Obviously, only you know that, but regardless, we just pray that we'd be ready <clears throat> one way or the other. Just have a, Let us have a great night of fellowship. I pray for uh, all the prayer requests we've uh, spoken of in the last couple of weeks, any unspoken prayer requests that people have tonight. I just pray for the Ukrainian people. I pray for the Christians specifically that are over there. I pray that you would guide them, protect them, keep them safe. I pray that uh, the blood of the lamb would anoint them that your guardian angels would wrap their wings around them and that your Holy Spirit would just fill them, uh, give them grace and mercy and help them find a way to survive. Uh, I pray for the leaders of this nation and the world leaders around us, that they would make the right decisions. Uh, Let there be a revival in the world over these situations. Uh, We just praise you again for your word uh, in Jesus name. Amen.
1: Amen. All right. So yes, we are in our second part of Armageddon tonight. Uh, last week, we saw the first part of Armageddon and the division I made um, around the event of Israel coming to faith in Christ, and that's because it has to do with the purpose of the tribulation period. The tribulation period has multiple purposes, uh, primary of which is to bring Israel to faith. A secondary uh, purpose for the tribulation period is to um, punish the world for its treatment of Israel and also to punish the unbelieving of Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. Uh, So we saw our first four stages of the campaign of Armageddon last week, which included uh, the reason it's called Armageddon, because the first staging of battle happens in the Valley of Armageddon, but uh, likely no fighting will take place in that valley. Now, that valley was called Galilee um, in the New Testament, so that'll help you uh, place where that is. That's where uh, much of Christ's ministry took place, was in that valley that the Antichrist will fill with his armies. Uh, The second stage was the destruction of Babylon by Gentile forces. Uh, The third stage was the conquest of Jerusalem by the armies of the false Christ. And then uh, we ended last week with the false Christ moving his armies from Jerusalem after his success in capturing the city down to Petra, where God had kept a remnant of Israel protected uh, during the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. So tonight, we're looking at the last four stages, and this is Israel in belief. Once Israel turns to the Savior and accepts him as their Messiah, then things start to turn around, because up until that point, up until stage four, it's looking pretty bleak for Israel, and perhaps the whole world will be saying what most of the world has been saying for the last 2,000 years, which Paul has a good argument against that we're going to look at tonight, that God has abandoned Israel, and Israel, rather than believing that God has abandoned them, will turn to him Um, to be rescued, and he will rescue them. So that's stage five. Israel will repent of their sin of rejecting the Messiah. They will mourn for the Messiah, and they will call on him for salvation. That is the pivotal point in history. Then King Jesus returns to rescue the distressed and besieged remnant at Petra. This is what Zechariah 12.7 calls the tents of Judah. Because Judah is going to be resting outside of the city in a temporary dwelling. And it says God will rescue them before he comes and rescues Jerusalem. Jesus will return to earth at Petra. He will slay the false Christ who is there waging war with the remnant of Petra. And then he is going to conquer the allies of the Antichrist all the way from Petra back to Jerusalem, rescue Jerusalem, and ascend up the Mount of Olives in victory. Now that is the decisive victory on earth over the Antichrist's kingdom. There is still going to be 75 days after that of cleansing the earth before he establishes the kingdom, but we get to look at that once we get to the millennial kingdom in chapter 20 of Revelation, so we're a couple months away on that yet, but this is going to give us a preview of what we're going to see uh, for the next few weeks. Uh, So we start with the regeneration of Israel. Now this is uh, the prerequisite for Christ's return. The reason he left, the reason he did not stay and establish the kingdom was because he had been rejected by Israel as their Messiah. So he would go away until they received him as the Messiah and then he would return. So this is what we're waiting for. We're not waiting for the antichrist. We're not waiting for the church to build the kingdom. We are waiting for Israel as a nation to receive Christ as the Messiah. Um, So you can see a couple of uh, verse headings here. What that is, is kind of a key for you guys if you wanted to go back in later and look at all of the places where this is mentioned. And this is not even an exhaustive list, but this is where it's covered in the most detail. In fact, I will touch on most of these verses, but Psalm 79 through 80, both of those Psalms give a very detailed uh, look at the regeneration of Israel in the last days. Um, so if you wanted to look at those afterwards to kind of recall what we learned tonight, I think that would be a good idea because I don't, I don't use those verses here because it would just take too many slides. Um, so this goes all the way back. Actually, it goes back much further even than Deuteronomy 17. It goes back to Uh, Genesis 12 with the covenant that God makes with Abraham, but here we are using Deuteronomy 17 as kind of a catch-all for everything that came before it in Moses's writings, but Deuteronomy 17 gives Israel a very important prerogative. He says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Now that is exactly the issue that we find Israel in in the last days. They have come into the, their land. They have not received the king of God's choosing, but they have put someone else over themselves. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 43. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He was recognizing the rejection of his messiahship um, in Israel in the first century. So he says, I have come in my father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And they do indeed receive another, um, and not only do they receive him as a Messiah figure over themselves, but they also cut a covenant with him. Now, God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God to Israel, and they are going to choose to make a covenant with someone else instead. And this is really the big issue, and this is what causes the seven years of tribulation. Remember, it's not the rapture, that causes the seven years, and the rapture could take place any time before it, but we will leave before because God is going to turn his face back to Israel and deal with them directly, and this is the cause. Uh, We've taken a couple of weeks out of our study to to look particularly at the covenants that God has made with Israel, and we've looked at um, all but one of them so far. This is a covenant totally apart from God's covenants. And it's a covenant of peace. It's a covenant of protection, uh, but it's found in the wrong source. So here in Daniel 9, 27, it's a depiction of the last days of the tribulation. It says, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, this is apocalyptic language, so it's not easy to know what's being said without its uh, context, but what it's speaking of here is Israel, who offers sacrifices, making a covenant uh, with someone who is going to be offering them peace. For three and a half years, he will be faithful to this covenant, but then he's going to break that covenant. Something that God has never done with Israel is break a covenant. This ruler will break this covenant with Israel, and he will stop their sacrificial system, he will stop their religious system, and he will persecute them. At that point, they will find refuge in God, but they will not yet receive his Messiah, uh, his anointed one. So God will hide them away in Petra uh, until they receive Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, when Jesus came, they had been well prepared to receive him as the Messiah. Uh, This was, again, their prerogative. They had been prepared by all of the prophets who came before John. Uh, They had been prepared by all of their histories, all of their dealing with God, all of their uh, witness to his faithfulness to them. They had every reason to believe that God would keep his promises. Uh, The issue ends up being that they had accepted the Pharisees over them as rulers, and they looked to the Pharisees to interpret uh, who the Messiah would be. And the Pharisees rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected Jesus Christ because his message was not the message of the Pharisees, but the message of Moses. They had built a fence around the, uh, the law of Moses in order to prevent themselves from being uh, kicked out of the land again. They recognized that their captivity Uh, Under uh, Babylon and Assyria came because they were not faithful to the Mosaic law. So they decided to make extra laws to make sure they would never accidentally break the Mosaic law and be kicked out of their land again. But what happened was they began to diminish the Mosaic law and lift up this law of the Pharisees. So when Jesus Christ came and he is preaching against the law of the Pharisees, the Pharisees rejected Jesus Christ. So the people followed the Pharisees rather than Jesus. But uh, they had been prepared to receive Jesus Christ, and many of them did, but nationally they did not. So in Matthew 3, we see the preparation by John the Baptist to, uh, to usher in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this uh, responsibility of John was to prepare the way for the Messiah of Israel, who would bring in the kingdom promised in the Old Testament. This had no New Testament context when Israel heard it for the first time here by John the Baptist. It had all of the context of the kingdom promised to Israel in the Old Testament, which would be an earthly kingdom ruled by their Messiah but they rejected this kingdom and the messiahship of Jesus Christ. Uh, And the results of that we see in Matthew 12. We see the rejection in Matthew 12 and the results. So uh, here is the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 43. He says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, we often misappropriate this text and apply it to uh, demon possession in humans, but notice that Jesus Christ is not applying this to demon possession in humans. He says, this is the way it will go with this evil generation. Jesus is saying that this generation has committed a sin. This generation has rejected uh, the one who should have come in and filled them and occupied them. John the Baptist came and swept Israel, prepared them for the acceptance of the Messiah, and they did not receive him. So when John the Baptist came in and shooed away the one demon, uh, and they received to they refused to receive Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now they are an empty vessel ready to be filled and conquered by seven more demons. This is a specific judgment on that generation. And they were about to be destroyed in AD 70 uh, by the Roman Empire. Uh, But another uh, chapter that speaks of this is just the following chapter in Matthew 13, where Jesus gives his disciples eight different kingdom parables. Actually, he gives them seven kingdom parables and one parable that's a key to understanding the other seven. We looked at these about a year ago, um, but I think now we've got enough background information to come back and look at them. This was a direct result uh, of the rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus began to teach in parables. No longer was he teaching in clear uh, messages because the kingdom was no longer being offered to Israel. They had rejected him, and his, uh, his purpose became to teach the church about what this age would be like. And his parable of the sower begins that lesson to the church and to Israel, whoever would come to faith in him as the Messiah, of why the kingdom was not coming. Now again, this passage has been misappropriated by a lot of uh, teachers. This is not primarily about salvation. And that's kind of a hard pill to swallow because it's been shoved down our throats that this is about salvation. This is about the rejection of the kingdom. It comes in that context in Matthew. Matthew's purpose is the rejection of the kingdom and why Jesus is the Messiah, but the kingdom is not present on earth. It was written to Jews uh, who were wondering why, if Jesus was the Messiah, did he not bring the promised kingdom? Matthew is explaining that. So in Matthew 13, when we see the parable of the sower, We have to remember that Jesus is speaking here to Jews about their rejection of him as the Messiah, not to Christians in the 21st century about their reception of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, um, who died for our sins. Notice that Jesus Christ has not yet died for our sins as in this passage, as he is speaking to his disciples um, prior to the cross. That message will come, but it will come by the apostles after the resurrection of Christ. So here with that uh, background and context, Matthew 13, 19 as Jesus explains the parable of the sower. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what he has, what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. When the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom Seed was sown on the soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Now, you can't receive the kingdom without receiving salvation. Um, so this uh, is not outside of the context of salvation, but it is not the primary purpose of this message. Three of these groups received salvation, but only one of them kept that message. Uh, were kept faithful to that message. That is the one that fell on good soil, the one which had been prepared by John, received that uh, that seed, and continued to grow in it and believe it. We could say that that is the disciples of Jesus Christ and uh, many of the women who followed his ministry. In John 6, verse 66, we see that some of his disciples um, chose to leave after he uh, It was obvious that he was not popular among the ruling class of the Pharisees. Uh, They feared the persecution of the Pharisees. They feared persecution um, politically, religiously, economically. And so they did not receive Jesus as their uh, Messiah King. And so the rejection of Israel or the rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel happened in Matthew 12, and was explained in Matthew 13. But then we get to Matthew 23, where the Pharisees officially reject Jesus Christ, uh, and Jesus Christ responds to them in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is confirming that the rejection has been completed. This is the official rejection and that he is going to leave, but will return at the point where they receive him as the Messiah. And they will absolutely receive him as the Messiah. Paul makes this argument in Romans 11, where he's dealing with the faithfulness of God. He has just laid out the promise of eternal security for the Christian believer in Romans 7 and 8, and then he answers the question, what about Israel? How can we trust God for our salvation? How can we trust him to be faithful to us if he has cast off Israel for their rejection of him? And Paul's argument is, He hasn't cast off Israel. Israel still belongs to him, and Israel will be brought to him, um, and he will save them. And it's on this guarantee that we stake our salvation as well. Um, So in Romans 11, 25 to 27, Paul comes to the climax of his argument and says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Uh, Paul is saying that not one jot or tittle of God's word will pass away until it is fulfilled. God absolutely will fulfill his promises to Israel, and this isn't really new information. Uh, Although he says this is a mystery and the way that it all unfolded was a mystery, not revealed um, in the Old Testament, but revealed for the first time by Paul, uh, we did see that Israel would go through cycles of disobedience, punishment, obedience, and blessing. Uh, All the way back to Leviticus 26, we saw this promised. It says, if they confess their iniquity, uh, if they confess their sin and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. Now this is a prophetic passage spoken by Moses, written by Moses, that actually foresees Israel in the last days. It says when they confess their iniquity, he's not speaking here to uh, the exodus generation of Israel. He is referring to the future generation of Israel that would receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They confess their own iniquity. They confess the iniquity of their forefathers before them, first century Israel, which rejected the Messiah. And uh, they confess the unfaithfulness committed against Jesus Christ, and also their acting in hostility against him. Uh, I also was acting with hostility against them, says God, to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so that they then make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. This is the promise that Israel still ought to hold onto, that uh, confession of their national sin of rejecting the Messiah will usher in the return of Jesus Christ. But Moses continues, for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord, their God. God is constantly reaffirming that he is the God of the covenants with Israel and that he must bring those covenants to pass because he is the Lord their God. He is invoking his own name here as a seal of promise on those covenants. So then we come to this interesting passage in Hosea 5 verse 15, uh, where God speaking again prophetically to Israel says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Now, this is in the context of the last days that uh, is developed in the first few chapters of Hosea. But notice very specifically the details of what God is saying here. He says he will go away and return to his place. And how can one return without first having come? So Jesus Christ is in view here as the one who came to earth and then returned, awaiting their acknowledgement of their guilt of rejecting him. But he promises that he will uh, return to them when they are in affliction and earnestly seeking after him. And that prepares the author, Hosea, um, to write then the following three verses, which is the call to repentance in Israel. These are probably the very words that will be used by the leaders of Israel in the last day to bring Israel to repentance, just as it was the leaders who led them astray. It will be the leaders that call to them these words of repentance. It says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, for he will, uh, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise up on the third day that we may live before him so let us know let us press on to know the lord his going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain like the spring rain watering the earth these are or this is the promise that the leaders of israel will make uh, to israel in the last days that when they confess their sin, and that will take two days, uh, then on that third day, Jesus Christ will return to them. And these are the words of their repentance, uh, recorded for us in Isaiah 53. Uh, You might recognize this as the suffering servant passage of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 53, which gives us a very clear picture of the redemption uh, bought by Jesus Christ, which it goes first to um, the Jew. So here in Isaiah 53, verse 1, it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we would be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is a confession of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Isaiah continues, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now keep in mind, this is what is barring Israel from faith right now. They do not believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross paid for their sins they do not believe that he came as their Messiah. so these words coming from their mouths will constitute their saving faith um, both spiritually and physically. It is because of these words that Christ will return to save them physically in the last days. Uh, Isaiah continues, he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shares so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he, did, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This identifies distinctively who the Messiah was that they rejected, the one who was crucified between two uh, criminals and then buried in a rich man's grave. They will recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel, whom they missed in the first century. They will confess the sin of their forefathers and they will confess their sin of rejecting him today. And they will be regenerated by God. And that was promised all the way back in Jeremiah 31, uh, starting in verse 31, says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now, notice this context as well. God is going to make a new covenant with them, not like the Mosaic covenant. What did they um, do with the Antichrist when he first uh, arrived on the scene, but to make a new covenant with him? So here they are caught between two new covenants. One is the false new covenant of the Antichrist that promises a false peace, and the other is the new covenant uh, ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross that will bring regeneration to Israel. And Jeremiah continues, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, which puts us into the future uh, in a prophetic sense here, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Notice he is not saying I will put the Mosaic law on their hearts, he's saying I will put my law within them, this is the law of God that is Uh, not just ceremonial as the law of Moses was but this is the eternal law of God uh, written from the beginning of history I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now this is a promise to Israel, a promise which we benefit from um, having been made partakers of the new covenant, but this new covenant is for Israel and it will only be fulfilled and received by Israel. Joel 2.28 speaks of this uh, regeneration in the last days and it says it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So in those last days, um, as Israel is distressed on all sides by the allied armies of the Antichrist, the false Christ whom they cut a covenant with, Uh, that was not the covenant of God, they will receive the covenant with Jesus Christ that will save them. Um, And the results of this are many, but ultimately victory. Uh, Victory over the spirit world, victory over this physical world. Uh, And this is spoken of in Zechariah 12. We spend a lot of time in Zechariah now. Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 are some of the greatest chapters on the last few days of the tribulation period. And it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will recognize Jesus Christ as their brother, as their savior. and They will mourn for him whom they pierced. Remember, this was a passage that we saw right at the beginning of Revelation. This was fresh on John's mind when he went to pen the first chapter of Revelation. Um, and he spoke of all the tribes of the earth weeping um, over Jesus. So he continues in Zechariah 12:11 and says, in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shem- Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. In that day, a fountain will be opened from the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. They will be cleansed nationally of their sins. Every single Jew who remains alive at that time will be spiritually regenerated by uh, faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And then uh, begins the purge of the land of Israel. Um, In Zechariah 13, verses 2 to 3, Uh, actually verses two to six, we see that the false prophets that we were told would be uh, copious in the land of Israel at that time, trying to lead astray the chosen ones of God, they will all be slaughtered. Uh, It says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, I just want to make a comment here about verse 6. This is why it's really important to look at the context of verses. Oftentimes, this verse is used uh, as a verse... Uh, to speak about Jesus Christ, the uh, what are these wounds between your arms? Uh, These are those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. They'll say this is about Jesus Christ. If you look at the context, this is about false prophets in Israel in the last days. Uh, So read your Bibles, uh, not just one verse at a time, but chapters and at least paragraphs at a time, uh, because this is about false prophets. This is not about Jesus Christ, and that's an embarrassing mistake. Uh, Zechariah 13:7 um, continues on this purging of the false prophets. It says, "Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate," declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. When they scatter the false prophets in Israel, uh, the followers of those false prophets are going to be scattered as well. Uh, think of it like taking away a queen bee, and the other bees scatter. Uh, it will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Uh, Now this, the Lord is my God, uh, this is an Old Testament passage in Zechariah, um, but it's the name used for uh, Jesus. It's in the Septuagint, it's the same name used for Lord uh, in the New Testament for Jesus Christ. Uh, This is an admission that Jesus Christ is the Lord over Israel, the Lord God over Israel. All right. So that is the national regeneration of Israel with a brief look at their at the results of their coming to faith in their Messiah.